This is writer and game designer Robin DeLaws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Envisioning Your Creations in Play. John Hayes Hammond Jr. Robin Hood. And Ecstatic Time Travel. Prophecies of Doom. Protagonists slopping through the wilderness. Battles of blood and mud. At least in Gloom of Thrones, you know the story will get an ending. Gloom of Thrones parodies characters and calamities from the Game of Thrones universe and combines them with the award-winning Gloom format. The goal of the game is to heap as much misery as you can on your characters before eventually killing them off. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of the original Gloom game, and of hits like Once Upon a Time and Ars Magica. Gloom of Thrones is kickstarting until April 29th. Search for it on Kickstarter, or go to atlas-games.com slash gloomofthrones. Or follow the link in the show notes. Because as the saying goes, if you aim for the porcelain throne, you best not miss. Did you set up the script to give that line to me? Might have. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Well, you know what I always say, Robin? I always say that when it's time to tell you what I always say, there's no better time to tell you than in a podcast segment we call That Thing I Always Say. And Robin, this time, it is something that you, not I, always say, though I'm sure I always said it starting about 18 months after you always said it. So what's that thing you always say? So the, the thing that I want to always say at you a whole bunch of times now, especially uh, to people who uh, write material for others to use, uh, particularly source book uh, material as opposed to uh, scenarios, is envision this in play. You may have had the experience, uh, dear uh, gamer listeners, of reading source book material, and it may have a lot of interesting details about the world. It may, uh, you know, go down an interesting sort of uh, rabbit hole of of thought and extrapolation, but doesn't ever quite get around to telling you how this matters in your world, how it actually comes into play at the table. So you can, first of all, have something where it's like, well, I don't know how to use this at all, or something where the use is sort of implied, but it's not quite as useful as it could possibly be. So when you're uh, creating things, always, whether it's a character or a description of a place or... Uh, even like an artifact or, uh, you know, whatever the things you describe in the world you're describing things in, always try and seed little plot hooks into them. Uh, so for example, you could be describing this, uh, you know, seemingly Arcadian glade, uh, which is, uh, secretly dangerous where people disappear all the time. And so Ken, what would be the, uh, non-useful way to describe a, uh, Glade where people vanish. Uh, first, you spend a long time describing the glade, and you talk about how uh, 5,000 years ago, uh, the elves planted that glade uh, to a specific elf goddess, and maybe you sort of divigate on the elf goddess's belief structures and maybe how it differs from today's goddess of planting. And then you get around to saying that over time, people gathered wood out of the glade and angered the elf goddess, and so she left. And oh, that's actually almost useful. I'm sorry. Uh, and then... <laughs> 
You, uh, <laughs> it, it is hard to be useless on command. It, it is hard to be useless on command. I mean, I can do it, but not in prose. <laughs> you have to sort of get the whole effect to, to see me being really useless. Um, <laughs> Sheila right yeah, now I, is, I'm useless naturally uh, yes. quite a lot, but on, on command, you uh, inadvertently become useful. Yes. Uh, that's, that's been Sheila's experience as well. So, uh, so you, you've described this sort of uh, lengthy backstory of the glade. Maybe you describe all the trees in the glade and what types they are and when it's in bloom and when it's not in bloom. And, um, then you describe, but uh, many travelers have reported that after leaving the glade, they're missing someone from their party. The end. That's still a little bit useful, but uh, it's not very useful. Right. It's, it's useful insofar as it is not yet a plot hook, but it will probably inspire the GM to turn it into a plot hook, right? But that leaves it up to the GM to do all the work of making that interesting and creating the interface between that uh, information right. and the players. Uh, but at least it assumes that the characters go there. Mm. Another really classic way that you can tell that the writer is not really envisioning how something gets used in play is that they are, uh, no one can ever go here. Uh, and that's right. a rookie mistake that I made when I was a rookie and almost everybody did. Uh, but why describe it if no one can go here? Either you implicitly are setting this up so no one has successfully gotten there in 500 years, well, of course, the implication there is that, well, the player characters are going to be the ones who do this remarkable feat. But then you have to sort of indicate, here's the set of circumstances under which it would be possible to end the 500-year record of people not going through this pass or not surviving the Elven Glade or what have you. So the uh, trick then is to always think in terms, while you're writing something, of not just the history of that place, because... If it has a, you know, a 5,000 year history, uh, how are the players going to learn that history? And how is it going to affect them in play? Exactly. And so that, uh, then takes something that is, uh, inert, uh, dramatically on the page, uh, just sort of a, you've described something static, independent of what the player characters are going to do. And now we're moving. Okay. So there's a, there's a stone, uh, there, there's a men here in the middle of the Selvan Glade and, uh, if you knock that over, you will find uh, that it goes many feet deeper into the earth. And on uh, the the exposed part uh, are a few little sigils and stuff. But if you dig it up then you, and wash it off, then you can read the whole thing. You can read the, the whole legend. But, of course, digging up the menhir angers the spirits of the glade who then, uh, you know, attack you in this formation or uh, with such to, and such hit dice right try to steal your goods so that there's you've taken uh, uh just what's a bunch of independent word spending about the world that the characters can never uh deal with and instead uh not only created that mechanism but you've created an implied action right and so even like in a monster description always think about who the characters are in this game uh so you know if they're the uh independent investigators who are just sort of normal people in the this is normal now uh sequence of the yellow king even for them they're going to have a a different way of entering into the storyline with a, a creature for example than even the characters in other sequences of that game and so you have to think well why would just sort of ordinary people wind up interacting with this creature and so as part of the creature description you can then describe what that would be so you know, I, I guess an alternate way of saying this is sort of always be pl plot hooking. Um, right. It's, but it's not the only uh, example of 
uh, envisioning something in, in play as you uh, write. So, uh, Ken, while you're working on Fall of Delta Green, were there things that you found in particular that uh, you needed to do something extra in order to activate the history of that setting and get the players engaged with it? I mean, the thing that you have to provide is uh, the way that that uh, element of the history uh, relates to the current concern. So if you're talking about the raid on Innsmouth, you can say that there maybe are a couple of, uh, of, of that there's the documents from that raid, the after action report. And so you put that into the tomes so that people can use that tome to understand about the raid on Innsmouth. The raid on Innsmouth doesn't become empty backstory. It becomes a thing the player characters might potentially access. And in the same way, in that glade, you might say the uh, old uh, herbalist Goody uh, Collier has lost four children to the glade and will be very grateful to any adventurers who can solve the mystery and bring her children back. And then that gives you like, oh, here's a person that we can ask about. Here's a ally maybe we could get. Here's a thing that could happen if we interact with this glade as opposed to we just wander past it. Uh, roll to disappear. Oh, no one disappeared. End of story. And even if you roll to disappear, that's something that we didn't put into the clade. You have to put that in. And so the similar thing happens with, uh, uh, things that were historically uh, in the setting. For example, there was a, uh, raid into the Congo to destroy an avatar of Nirlathotep, uh, during the, uh, Katangan Civil War. And you can just say that happened. But when I'm presenting a thing that happens in the 1960s, I presented four or five ways that your team of Delta Green agents could have been involved in that. And that you can either make those be little missions that you do in the course of the game. Those are just standard operations or adventures, or it can be a ba- part of your backstory. Oh, I was in the Congo. Uh, here's the kind of thing that happened to me. And that provides you with elements of your, of your character story, uh, at the very least, even if it doesn't, you know, set up an entire adventure for you to play out this, because you always have to be thinking in, in, the, in all this material, what, hooks into the current day player group. What are they going to be u- utilizing this glade for? And it may just be that, uh, yeah, it's just a role to resist disappearing, you know, uh, and if you do, you don't disappear. Great. And that's, that's boring, but it's fine. Uh, it might be something where, Oh no, we can help out, um, uh, the, the good cottager lady and with the widow collier and, and help her out. That'd be terrific. Or it could be a thing where, uh, you uh, t- overturn the men here and you get the backstory, the history, and that provides you with information about the elven goddess worship. If you're an elf, that's that, that will help you, especially if you're an elven cleric, uh, but it'll anger the spirits and such and such will happen. So you can go the whole spectrum from a very, very simple interaction to a, you know, a, a story hook that is not necessarily an adventure that happens right here in the glade to, yeah, this glade is a place where adventure happens and here's the shape the adventure takes. But all those, Elements need to be in the description, less so all the other bump that you put in. In, in uh, after Ragnarok, especially, I, I sort of tried to follow the, the rule that every sentence was a story hook. It, it didn't necessarily contain, you know, uh, a story, but it contained something you'd use in the story. So if I describe a gun, I want to describe what's it going to f- do in play that will be, make this gun better than the other gun that you could have bought. Well, when I'm writing up Peru, the thing that I care about is the fact that there's a anthropologist and tennis star who's an FBI agent. That's an important guy in Peru because that's a guy you could meet less. So whoever's running Peru, I don't think I even mentioned the name of the guy who's running the place because he's less important than the guy you might meet in Peru uh, to find out about the Japanese uh, submarines that are there. The, the second step 
after you've envisioned uh, how this is going to be used in play and incorporated that into your write-up, is to make sure that the thing you're describing happening in play is interesting and goes somewhere. Yes. Uh, so, uh, for example, the idea that you might disappear if you fail a particular check is interesting if somebody fails, uh, but if everybody succeeds, that's a boring nullity. So you have to... Uh, uh, and that's an... We normally think of failures being boring and therefore not having them, but that's an, an, an example of a boring success is one in which the uh, players all passively roll for something to avoid something to the players and make saving throws and they all make them. Well, then they go on their way, none the wiser. So you have to make sure that, uh, you know, some of them start to seem to disappear and waver and, uh, and manage to reappear so that they avoid the threat, but they're alerted to its existence and that uh, leads them uh, into something. Uh, another way that you can, uh, particularly what you're, you're mentioning writing characters and, and one, uh, you can sort of be formulaic about the way that you uh, incorporate game master characters in, into uh, your writing is you can say how uh, what does this character want from the players uh, from the player characters when they show up or what will the player characters want from them now there's always implicitly in most action oriented fantasy games for example that one of the options is you could fight and they could try to steal stuff from you or vice versa. But uh, they could also want to hire you. And that's a way to also hook the players into the idea that all of the characters in a given area have existing relationships uh, with each other that are perhaps static until the party shows up. So you can have, well, this guy might be very suspicious of uh, player characters if they arrive wearing this uh, particular uh, uh, uniform. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, and, and then might try to drive them off or put them in the clink. But if he thinks he might send them off uh, after the vampire queen, uh, he might try to get them to go and do that. And so the agendas of the game master characters are plot hooks, and they're plot hooks that allow the uh, different uh, game master characters to seem connected to one another because it's the actions of the player characters that are doing that connecting. And even things like uh, that we don't normally think of in those terms, like, for example... You know, occult tomes in a Cthulhu game, they already have an implicit way that they pop up in play, which is that you read them and get you, hideous. You, you read them. Yeah. You, you, you stumble across them or people are fighting over them, but you might also add additional material to if you have this book, who's going to come and try to take it from you? Uh, who can you possibly sell it to? And so add a bit more detail to your write-ups in order to, uh, even Take something that already has uh, an implied action and add another couple of actions to it because uh, when you're running a game, particularly one that's uh, uh, sandboxy or, or relatively improvised, the more possible things for the players to decide to do, the better. Right. And then sort of the the apotheosis of this kind of approach is something like uh, the Armitage Files of the Dracula dossier where every character is connected potentially to the universe in any number of different ways. And the source book goes out of its way to tell you what ways those might be and provides links and connections between all the various GMCs, all the various items, all the various locations and all the various possible agendas such that you, the GM can pick and choose from amongst these myriad of hooks that there's more hooks literally than you can play through in a, in a book like that uh, and provide a uh, immediate game effect 
potentially for meeting anyone uh, that that every single GMC might be part of the conspiracy or they might be helping you against the conspiracy or they might be a victim of it or they might be part of some third force that's involved in the setting and is therefore connected to these other nine GMCs and potentially as you say with a, with a sandbox play all the little dinosaurs you dig up should have beef with another dinosaur so that you can turn that isolated moment of discovery and and fun into something that connects you into the web of a seemingly already existing world. And that's the secret, I think, to any good narrative, whether it's a game or a movie or a novel, is you have to believe that the world exists off the page or off the screen uh, and isn't simply being sort of dumb show presented for you, the players or readers, to uh, engage with. You have to right. have some verisimilitude and confidence that if you went over those hills, there'd be something there instead of a sign saying, welcome to backstage, now get back over the damn hills. Right. But it can't be so far backstage that the players have no way of getting there. It has to, and, and I think that's a, a much more common error in sourcebook writing in you, the, the author just sort of uh, starts to spin a series of, of events without putting player characters in their right. minds at the center of those events. Yeah. If you've, if you've written, um, uh, 50 pages about the inaccessible continent, those are 50 wasted pages. Right. Or even things that just talk about what the authorities are doing, uh, in relation to this creature. Well, that, uh, might come into play and that's fine, but don't leave out what the player characters are doing and why they would be interacting. Right. Unless the player characters are playing the authorities in a, in a game. Uh, then you, you want a, a, maybe a line as to if you start fighting this dragon, you will anger the duke who's, uh, been sending his sons after the dragon, one after the other, to weed out the unfit and maybe to get the dragon's treasure for himself. Right. And so that's a description of what the authorities are doing that brings in the player characters because exactly. you've been envisioning this in play. And so, uh, that is a thing that I would always say, envision this in play. And having always said that, and said that a lot in this segment. I'm going to uh, see what's on the other side of the commercial. Maybe even some things that I don't always say. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pograin Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? 
It's time once more for Ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, uh, Kevin Roy is doing the asking of Ken and Robin, and his question is, John Hayes Hammond Jr., the father of remote control, and what are the mythos significance of Hammond Castle, and what was he doing with his father's body in his dungeon for two years? Uh, So, uh, we've got a topic, and we've got a question, and uh, let's get on with it. So, John Hayes Hammond Jr., Died in 1965. He was aged uh, 76, uh, and over the course of his uh, career as an inventor, and uh, turned out to be quite wealthy inventor, he uh, filed and, and received 800 patents in radio control and naval armaments. And uh, his uh, interest that led him to create a castle started when he was uh, he was uh, 10. His family was already uh, quite well healed and moved him around a lot when he was a kid. So he, his he, father uh, was a mining engineer who had the Midas touch and every mine he touched or, or, uh, or engineered could produce uh, vast quantities. Right. And, and fortunately not the kind of Midas touch that uh, would have turned John Hayes Hammond Jr. And we had the good one. He had, he had yes. the, the Midas touch, uh, with the, with the bonus. Exactly. And so, uh, he, um, met some pretty famous people who took him under their wing at age 12. He went to visit, uh, Edison's factory and he asked, uh, so many precocious questions that Edison took a shine to him and uh, not only gave him a personal tour, but remained his mentor for the rest of his life. I think Alexander Graham Bell was also a figure in his yeah, life. Met him at Yale um, or met him while he was at Yale. I don't think Bell was at Yale, but I think while uh, Hammond was at Yale, he met Alexander Graham Bell and similarly impressed uh, Bell, who was uh, thinking about uh, wireless uh, transmission and, and other similar questions, uh, radio waves. And so uh, Bell and he, again, Bell noticed a, a guy who was going to be a great inventor and took him under his wing likewise. So he's got two pretty A-list patrons there, uh, Edison and Bell. Uh, and then he graduates and goes to work for the patent office on the theory that you should know what everyone else is inventing and what's likely to make money if you're going to be an inventor. And that's the Edison coming out, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. There's a, some, some, uh, mentoring in, in entrepreneurialism as well, right. isn't there? And between his vast sums of money and his father's vast sums of money, he's able to, uh, found a research laboratory, uh, which he does, uh, inventing among other things. Remote control. Tesla also invented remote control. I'm sure that people in the comments can fight about that. Uh, he invented uh, part of what makes FM radio possible. Multi-band broadcasting apparently is, is one of his things. He was on the board of RCA. He, you know, pulled in a bunch of money from a bunch of stuff. And during the war, he built a bunch of uh, naval weapons for the uh, military, including the variable pitch propeller, which is something that I think is one of the two or three most important developments in aerodynamic engineering ever, right? That, you know, once you get the plane up in the sky and get it moving, the variable pitch propeller lets you change speed without um, uh, sacrificing lift. Uh, so between that and the remote control, uh, something that uh, is still things very much in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. This is this is no, you know, he invented a tonic that was popular no. for several years until they found out how much cocaine was in it. And then it was suddenly more popular and then <laughs> right. less, less popular. Super popular, then less popular. And with uh, said monies, he then built himself his own castle, uh, just as is the dream of every young boy. Yeah, so this is from 1926 to 1929. Mm-hmm. It's got a drawbridge. It's got his lab in it. It's got a, a pool you can cannonball into in the courtyard. Yes. And you can, uh, there's a switch that you can flip to, to immediately empty the pool. So, you know, he's not just installing a pool. He's improving 
the pool as he installs it. Right. Uh, so basically, he is the mad, you know, he d- doesn't seem particularly mad so far, but this is definitely the set in which you would place a uh, mad scientist from a 1930s Universal movie because it is both uh, modern and medieval. So it's got, uh, his, his castle has not only his lab in it, but it has a great hall with a pipe organ. And uh, big chunks of it are, are basically a museum for his collection of medieval and Renaissance artifacts. Uh, there's a human skull supposedly belonging to a crewman from uh, Columbus's uh, journeys. So already we've got all sorts of um, makings of, of ghosts. We've got uh, secret passageways and a library with a whispering ceiling. Ooh. Have you ever had a, a library ceiling whisper at you, Ken? Um, I have not had a light, by the way. I've had museum ceilings whisper at me. Library ceilings uh, mostly just speak to me in plain, manly terms, and they say, "Come on in." Read some books. They don't, they don't have any whispering to do, but the whispering ceiling is, of course, the acoustic effect. And you've may have noticed it in your finer, uh, planetariums and museums of science, uh, where you say something in one corner of the room and you can hear it, uh, because of the acoustical effect in the other corner because the ceiling transmits the waves. And again, this would be part of his general, uh, excitement about, uh, wireless transmission of things, which includes the wireless transmission of thought. Because he is also a funder and uh, backer of psychic experiments, including the lovely and talented Irish medium, uh, Eileen Garrett, uh, who, by the way, did not uh, claim that she spoke to ghosts. She didn't believe in ghosts. She believed that she entered a magnetic field psychically and picked up impressions on that magnetic field left by other living people. So, not ghosts, magnetic impressions, get it right. Right. And so, she was on the sciencey side of parapsychology, and that uh, explains why she was... I mean, she was, uh, still a, she was still a fraud, don't get me wrong, right. but... <laughs> but on the science-flavored, yes, you're right, there's... Yeah. We, we have to say that uh, things that seem sciencey might be a fraud, because that's uh, something we would otherwise not consider. Uh, but she was uh, also worked with J.B. Ryan and, uh, and was friends with Aldous Huxley, uh, who we mentioned in a, a recent episode. And, uh, Hammond's experiments with her, uh, were, were very sciencey because he put her in a Faraday cage in order to, uh, try and track down the, uh, psychic or, or telepathic frequencies that, uh, she was, uh, tapping into. And it turned out, uh, go figure her telepathy, her magnetic impressions were able to go through a Faraday cage because, as stated before, she was cheating. Right, because science <laughs> science has taught us nothing. It's that Faraday cages stop psychic waves. Yes. Let's see. If if you want uh, more uh, reason for there to be ghosts and weirdness in Hanman Castle, uh, the uh, most of the structure is from local granite, but uh, the windows and doorways and interiors are often imported bits and pieces of other castles from all over Europe. So... Uh, if you want to connect Hammond Castle in your uh, scenario to any other castle where weird, creepy things happened, uh, you have a reason to do so. Yep. So that, you know, that lintel might have been Elizabeth Bathory's, and that's that's all you need, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, she might have looked through that window when she cast her spell and left little bits of it in there. Uh, so the one thing on in my cursory research that I was unable to track down was this bit uh, Kevin asked about, about his uh, keeping his father's body in a dungeon for two years. Did you? Yeah. Uh, I feel like that may have been something that someone said on one of the ghost hunter shows because his castle is appropriately haunted by his 
uh, wife, uh, Irene, who apparently, uh, this is one of those things that's in the story. He built the castle as a present for his wife. And I want everyone here who is married to (laughs) speculate on the likelihood that that actually worked. (laughs) I have built you a castle, honey. honey. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I just knew like you'd want a drawbridge and a, wanted. and a whispering ceiling, uh-huh. and a lab, and a secret door, and a giant pipe organ, and a and a and a crypt that connects to the sea, just like you wanted. I know you've been hankering after all these things. Oh, and by the way, there's this little bedroom here you'll like. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, no, you can't have that. I'm I'm putting a Renaissance pew into it, but you can have this other room. Uh, just don't mind the fact that it's got a medieval clear story in it. Yeah, so, um, for whatever reason, Irene found the company of, uh, John Hayes Hammond Jr. perhaps a little appalling, and, uh, you can't really get away from him if you're in his castle, so that's why she haunts the place. Or, maybe I'm just, uh, a, a victim, likewise, of sensationalist, uh, ghostologists, uh, and that their marriage was a happy one. But I, I have a suspicion that maybe there were some bad seeds sown when he built the, the castle and tried to convince his wife it was for her. I feel like that's that's a sign of something going wrong. That's a giant bummer, though, to have her ghost stuck in the rotten castle she didn't like. Yeah, well, that's why it's ghostly. That's a bad right. thing. Um, but I looked into John Hayes Hammond Sr. and found out that he himself was was quite a fellow. Uh, like I mentioned, he had the, um, uh, the, the Midas Touch. He was uh, buddies with literally everyone. And in fact... Uh, in 1926, in May of 1926, John uh, Hayes Hammond Sr.'s friends sponsored 11 simultaneous dinners around the world in his honor and wrote um, uh, tributes to him from William Randolph Hearst all the way down to President Coolidge. People, uh, you know, saying how great John Hayes Hammond is. So that's and the respect you earn when you show a bunch of people where gold is. It is. That's that's where that's where the um, uh, legitimate uh, power comes from is knowing where all the gold is and oil. He also found oil in other thing. In you know, when it, when gold starts to play out, he just retunes his dousing rod or whatever, and off he goes and he finds oil and makes another giant fortune. Um, and so he's he's buddies with uh, the president, uh, two presidents, with Taft and Coolidge, and um, uh, quite the fellow. And according to every source I found about John Hayes Hammond. Uh, senior, he died in June 8th, 1936, and was buried in, uh, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York, in June 11th, 1936. He was not kept in anyone's dungeon for two years. Now, perhaps John Hayes Hammond Jr. swapped the bodies? Perhaps there was chicanery? Perhaps there was jiggery and or pokery? Perhaps, uh, Greenwood Cemetery is in on the cover-up? Or perhaps, Someone's ghost program made stuff up and hoped no one would catch them. So, yes, there's certainly lots of reasons other than the fact that you have a ghost show that you're producing and you need places to go uh, to have uh, psychic investigator type characters uh, encountering this place in, in the present day. It is uh, now a museum that's open to the public for self-guided tours and the like and has fundraising events. And uh, the pipe organ has been inoperative for the last four years. Uh, maybe they took some of that ghost hunter money and put it in the pipe organ fund. Yep, they could have. And I, I want to emphasize this is this is the Hammond organ, but it is not the Hammond organ. Right. That's it a different is, organ. It's not a Hammond B3. And no, while we're disambiguating our Hammonds, this is also not the John Hammond, who was a uh, super influential uh, music producer or and, and whose son was John Hammond Jr., the blues man. This is a different 
John Hammond Jr. and Sr. Right. One thing I might uh, have the characters investigate is what happened uh, to the stolen cats. Right. Uh, because, uh, first first of all, stolen cats. Yep. I, I think I, I need saying no more, but I'll nonetheless persevere. So Hammond had himself buried in a steel casket in a mausoleum, along with uh, three of his Siamese cats preserved in jars. So, again, nothing creepy going on here at all. Nothing. Uh, uh, Hammond loved cats. And every time one of his cats would die, he would put it into a jar full of embalming fluid and drive around uh, Cape Ann, Massachusetts, honking his horn uh, as a one-man funeral pr- procession uh, for his cat. And because he was very, very rich, no one ever <laughs> arrested him yes, for is, <laughs> contributing to disturbing the peace. It's not cause for uh, right. incarceration. But uh, he had lots and lots of these cats that were in jars around the property. And again, you begin to say, maybe Irene has a point. Uh, she's certainly not buried in the in, next to him in the crypt. She's buried in Brooklyn with her father-in-law. But uh, he, he very much liked his cats. He thought they were the bomb. And indeed, uh, three of the jars had escaped the tender ministrations of the of the cleaning staff. Uh, and so when he was uh, uh, buried uh, in 1965, he was buried or immured, I guess, technically, because he was in a crypt um, with three of his cats who were also in jars full of embalming fluid with him. Uh, and those cats were stolen, as uh, Robin intimates in 2008, when uh, people broke into the crypt, which, oh, for no reason, oh, is open to the sea. So <laughs> you can you know, uh, go through a door from the ocean and up some stairs and you're in the crypt. So that's that's nothing. Oh, did we mention that the castle is in Gloucester, Massachusetts, that it's right there spang on, you know, Kingsport country in in uh, in Lovecraft town? Uh, no, that's that's not relevant. I'm sure to any of this discussion. But uh, according to this, they stole the cats. Now, again, this is maybe one of those cover stories that you want to interrogate. If you're a fun ruiner, because it turns out that the trust that is uh, managing the castle wants to sell off the mausoleum area to developers because they need money to run the castle. And what better way to do that than say, oh, people broke into the mausoleum. It's not safe. We have to bury him somewhere else. Oh, and by the way, now we can put the mausoleum up for sale, despite Hammond's very clear will and testament. Well, I'm sure that that's what you would be told when you go there to try and find who has the jar cats now right yes if you're trying to hunt them down yeah uh, you would you would break through and they would say oh we just made that up we just threw the jar cats out but then that guy's shifty yeah and you don't know maybe the jar cats are powerful right they can be jar cats from ancient egypt they can be uh moon cats from the dreamlands they can uh, have been immured not in embalming fluid but in the magnetic fluid that eileen garrett was in touch with and so they are, are like little psychic Leiden jars and so you can use them to uh, engage in psychic uh, connections and communications back and forth if you have two of them. Um, and because it's a museum that's open to the public, uh, you can, for once, have your characters not have to sneak into the main site. They'll have to not get caught when they're trying to uh, sneak into the mausoleum. But uh, So I, I think there's, uh, uh, if anything, too many possible plot hooks surrounding uh, John Hayes Hammond Jr. So we'll have to leave to the listeners the choice of which one to uh, further tease out as we move on to see what hot awaits us uh, just past this upcoming exciting message.
The best of Ask Figeln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Visualize this podcast surviving by joining such Patreon stalwarts as... Randy Ship, Rich Spainauer. Aaron Sapp. And Alex Johnston. A profusion of Grecian pillars, rune stones, and strange uh, jade discs with holes in them uh, beckons us further into the Mythology Hut. And here in the Mythology Hut, Patreon backer Martin Wegemakers tell, asks us, tells us, uh, implores us. Yes, he puts forward a thesis and asks us to uh, expound upon it. Exactly. His thesis is as follows. It seems to me... Every new adaptation of the Robin Hood story is worse than the one before. Already I feel a kinship to Martin. Why do so many Robin Hood movies and TV series fail? And what elements are needed to make a good Robin Hood movie or TV series? Yeah, so first of all, we're not pushing back on that thesis at all. I think that thesis is 100% correct. And, And the reason that things fail is because Sturgeon's Law. People are terrible. The universe is terrible. We don't deserve good things. That's why things fail. Well, more broadly, <laughs> yeah, or, or more, I guess less broadly. You, well, you want uh, a specific actually, answer? Come to right. think of it, um, the problem that you are now seeing, uh, and I, I must actually specify that I am assuming that all of the uh, critics who are paid to go to see these recent Robin Hood movies and said they were terrible are correct. So yeah, uh, you know, at some point you just give up. <laughs> I, I don't have enough time to watch all the good movies. And that's what critics are for, is to steer me away from the bad ones. But uh, what seems to be the thing is the, uh, particularly with films, is the current kind of Hollywood approach to pitch meetings, where it's like, what's your new, fresh new angle on X? And in this case, X is Robin Hood. And so you can't just go in and say, "Um, I'm going to do Robin Hood, because people really like that, with a modern cast of popular actors. And... I'm going to execute it really well so that it's uh, fun and energetic and uh, kids will really like it. But it's not different than the previous version of uh, Robin Hood that's the best version, which is The Adventures of Robin Hood by Michael Curtiz. That's the best ever. Uh, right. You can't yeah. uh, ever do anything that's, uh, you know, that's one reason versions of Robin Hood keep getting worse is because... <laughs> they started with one of the absolute good best films then, ever. Right. <laughs> Although, of course, that was in no way the first film Robin Hood. No. But you can't just say... We're just going to do it again and execute it really well. That's not a pitch. And so uh, they keep coming in, and, and I guess the latest one, well, we're going to do gritty emo teen sort of uh, uh, Robin Hood. It'll be Occupy it. Robin Hood. Yes. And the Ridley Scott version is a really crazy story of how there was one weirdo take on it uh, when it, the script first got purchased, uh, which was, this is going to be an exciting revisionist Robin Hood from the point of view of the, the sheriff, sheriff of Nottingham. Nottingham. And then Ridley Scott got attached to direct it. And as big time directors uh, get to do, they say, well, 
I want to make a Robin Hood movie, but I don't want to make that Robin Hood movie. Instead, I have a really interesting idea that we're just going to hang it all on the uh, physics of archery. I, I've not seen that film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that in the I think that in the original script there was a bit where it was like forensic archery and so they would go and they would find a guy who's been shot with a bunch of arrows and some character would say you know for all i know alan adale i don't know some guy would say um guy of gisborne let's say um would say ah this is a, a, a cloth yard shaft and it was fired from this angle it could only have been fired by the best archer in the land and so you'd have some forensic archery going on in the show that would be establishing this notion of robin hood as a mysterious figure of terror uh, to the, to the, uh, people of, of Nottingham and, uh, to the sheriff, at least of Nottingham. And I have no idea if the original script was, you know, the big reveal was that the authorities were evil and Robin Hood was good, or the big reveal was Robin Hood was a monster serial killer and, uh, just pretending to be caring about the poor or, or what it was, because as you say, it got redone into let's make a grim, modern, humorless Robin Hood with Russell Crowe and, uh, let's really make it about a guy with PTSD and arrows. And, and that's what they did. And, uh, it worked so well that neither you nor I saw it and neither of us can remember what its real premise was. So the question of how to do a good Robin Hood, uh, adaptation is, I think, first of all, number one, uh, casting. And if you have someone who is today's Errol Flynn, proceed to step two. Yeah. And weirdly, weirdly they did. Because they had Oscar Isaac in that movie. They just cast him as King John. That was slightly before <laughs> his heyday. Um, yeah, but still. And, yeah, yeah. If you were a great casting director, you could have seen that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that there's no one today who is as charismatic as Errol Flynn. Uh, but uh, you want to get, first of all, I, I don't think... Uh, there's already been a really great uh, old Robin Hood movie, Robin and Marion. Right, starring the immortal uh, Sean Connery. Sean Connery and, and Audrey Hepburn. Um, and, uh, and that's a really great sort of part of the 70s cycle of revisionist genre movies. Um, and so since we have that, uh, I, I also don't think you particularly need an older or a grimmer, uh, Robin Hood. Certainly they went very young, uh, with the, the, the latest version. Uh, but I think you just want a, uh, a, a sort of a, a believable, action hero aged character and, and they uh, had him and they've already had a magic Robin Hood because they had the British television Robin Hood where he was all in tune with Hearn the Hunter and the forces of the Druids. Right. And while I think people of goodwill can disagree as to how actually good that was, it's definitely been done now. And um again, maybe you don't need that. So uh the 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 thing is to just sort of uh would be to do the class it's very hard to Look at a classic and, and redo it. Of course, someone is going to, uh, forget that Rocket Robin Hood was ever a thing and try to do a serious, uh, Robin Hood in space movie. And, uh, <laughs> you could, uh, possibly see, uh, you know, if you, if you gave, uh, Jean Yimou a lot of money, uh, you might be able to convince him to do a really cool, uh, version of Robin Hood. It might be interesting to see, uh, that tackled from, uh, either a different cultural perspective or just by, a, uh, a director from, uh, from outside the, the Hollywood system. Um, and we've had two funny Robin Hoods already. We had the Disney Robin Hood where Robin Hood is a fox, which is the only Robin Hood that can possibly compare to Errol Flynn. That's a pretty and, solid uh, Robin Hood, yeah. And we had one of the rare cases where a, uh, Mel Brooks movie was better than the thing it was making fun of because it was making fun of the Kevin Costner movie, Robin Hood Men in Tights. 
uh, by Mel Brooks, which is, right. I don't want to say the last good Mel Brooks movie, but it's up there. And, and the Costner movie, I guess, actually does what I'm, tried to do what I'm saying, which was get big contemporary stars and do it well. They just did step A. Yeah, they, they got Kevin Costner instead of someone with charisma, <laughs> uh, which I guess was a mistake a lot of people were making in the 90s, but still. And and I, I, I you, you can't have a Robin Hood who's, who's surly. I guess is the thing, right? Robin right. Hood is having fun. Robin Hood is 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 maybe he's very dead serious about the the hated Normans or the or the filthy rich people taking money from the poor, but he does it with a verve and an elan that causes people to rally to him. Um, it, it's not that he's like a, a grim humorless guerrilla leader. That's not fun, Robin Hood. And, right. And, I, I wouldn't agree that the Costner was without charisma during his heyday, but it was a sort of a, a more brooding bull Durham aside. I would like to see that argument. Well, he, <laughs> he had a sort of a more brooding Gary Cooper sort of style. Right, that, fair enough. You know, he's he only hold- become Gary Cooper in, in his late post Costner era with open range well, and that, that Gary stuff. Cooper was young at one point too. And yeah, uh, for field and, of dreams. And we remember and, all the great films he made then. Well, this is a giant tangent, but there's some <laughs> really great early uh, Gary Cooper movies, including like, uh, Screwball comedies where he's very funny, but that this is a million miles away uh, from right. the mythology of Robin so, Hood. So, so, um, so let's let's get back to Martin's questions. You need a a, a charismatic Robin Hood, uh, a, a devil may care adventurer uh, as your as your main Robin Hood, and you need an actor who can uh, play that. And you need archery. I think that's fair. Trick shots, things like that. That's part of Robin Hood. Uh, Robin Hood just beats you need, people. Uh, in the head. Radical redistribution of income. Certainly, yes. You need a a social context of some sort because Robin Hood has been about that since medieval times. Uh, you need a uh, a band of merry men. I think a Robin Hood who's just a solo uh, loner. Uh, ninja Robin Hood would not be as as fun as a or as, as Robin Hood as one who's got a gang of of ruffians that follow him. Uh, your your little Johns and your Will Scarlets right. and your Alan Adales. And and once you have the gang, you have the putting your gang together. Uh, sequence. Montage, yep. Yeah. Which, one of the great uh, montages in all Western literature, by the way, is how Robin Hood puts his gang together in, in the, in the, in the original ballads and jests. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's the father of all great putting the gang together, so you definitely need that. Um, Maid Marian is a late addition to the legend, but I think you need Maid Marian. I think Maid Marian elevates the story and prevents it from being, uh, two, uh, boys club, uh, uh, nonsense with they're just, out in the woods, uh, screwing around, uh, Lost Boys style. I think you need a Maid Marian. Robin, do you think you need a Maid Marian? Uh, absolutely. And in fact, that, uh, perhaps a, a, an angle that hasn't been done before uh, that might be interesting is, uh, a, a gender swapped, uh, Robin Hood. You've got a Robin who's, uh, passing herself off as a, as a man, as, uh, uh, exciting adventurous women had to do in that era. And, uh, the uh, that could put a, a whole spin on everything, including the uh, relationship with Maid Marian. Right. right. A female Robin Hood actually is not super implausible because although the bow demands a great deal of upper body strength, one of the things that we think of as Robin is the is the precision, the trick shottery. And that, of course, you don't necessarily need a huge, you know, 300 pound pull on a bow to be able to shoot it between two sprigs of greenwood or whatever. And so, uh, you can have a, uh, you know, a sort of a Katniss Everdeen style Robin Hood, which again, 
there's some Robin Hood in, in that. I think that's one of the things that we're talking about is you take those bits of the myth and you recycle them into a, a different story. And so there's some, there's some Hunger Games Robin Hoodness going on because she's taking down the corrupt order all Robin Hood style. She doesn't have a gang, uh, so much, but still, I think you have a Katniss Everdeen style Robin Hood. I think that could, that could play a lot of, uh, of fun parts. Uh, well, I, I think it's time for us to uh, stop giving free ideas to our listeners in L.A. who are driving to uh, pitch meetings and uh, time to uh, see what our final segment might be about. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tyne sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. This time around, Patreon backer Dan O'Hanlon has an assignment slash question for uh, our uh, intrepid uh, chrono hero. In the alternate timeline where ecstasy became the 60s countercultural drug of choice rather than LSD... How did this difference affect 60s and 70s art and culture? And it's implied in the question, but I guess we should fully tease out uh, whether this was uh, a timeline that you were planning to institute or one that you uh, had to stop. So ecstasy and LSD, it turns out, have a lot in common. They were first uh, synthesized uh, much, much earlier than their uh, adoption. Uh, and uh, part of they were just sort of used in experimental circles for uh, many decades and it seems as if ecstasy uh, first became a street drug uh, not so long after LSD. I think it might be 68 or 70 may have been the first instance. In Chicago. Where, yes, where, where, where all uh, uh, bad social experiments go to uh, fight each other. Um, and so, uh, Ken? I mean awesome social experiments. Um, yes. Uh, there's a, um, uh, uh, there's a American psychopharmacologist named Alexander Shulgin who began, um, uh, studying, uh, MDMA, which is what they called it before it got a cool new brand name. He called it window, which is the kind of dumb sixties name it probably would have had. Uh, so the, the, the notion being that, uh, if you remove LSD from the equation, some other experimental drug 
uh, takes its slot in the ecosystem. Uh, and as you may re- remember, we sort of hijacked uh, the LSD movement with uh, our good old uh, Operation Outsight, uh, where we uh, saved the life of uh, young Rockefeller. So, so that's a, a double Aldous Huxley callback. It's a double Aldous Huxley it. callback. Yep. And uh, so in that timeline, LSD is more st- uh, strongly controlled or at least has a, uh, a a nerdier vibe to it. And uh, in that timeline, similarly, Shulgin is either begins his research earlier or because the U.S. Army began um, MDMA experimentation in the 1950s in Mich- at Michigan, uh, those experiments could have gotten out and uh, Ann Arbor could have been the, the, the ground zero for the drug instead of um, uh, Boston and later on San Francisco. And so you have a big Midwest explosion of uh, ecstasy use or window use to use its dumb uh, period term. Uh, and I think that what you have is very similar to what you got when another dreary, gray, hideous part of uh, a, a great country experimented with uh, ecstasy. You got the Manchester sound. Um, and uh, similarly, I think Chicago uh, develops Acid House, you know, several decades earlier or something like it. I think the music is amazingly better. Uh, to get to uh, Dan's other question, uh, if it's driven by uh, window versus LSD, it's it's less sort of up your navel sitar music and more oons 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 dance beats, which is all great. Maybe you get disco uh, flowering or uh, beginning early because again, uh, being up there in Ann Arbor, it's going to interact with Motown and uh, the Motown sound, so you're going to have that blend of soul and uh, dance that created disco in the 70s in Philadelphia and was driven mostly by cocaine, although ecstasy was part of the Studio 54 scene even then. So, again, I think that my argument that ecstasy leads to dance music is uh, fully understandable. And so you have dance raves instead of be-ins, and, what's, and that's a million times better. Right, and so the, I guess the big um, macro difference would be that LSD, although people dropped it together, is an interior experience that it right. is about... Uh, you might share your uh, your trip with the people around you, uh, but you are sort of going uh, deeper into a distorted version of your perceptions, whereas ecstasy notoriously is about a sense of togetherness and uh, wanting to, uh, you know, touch each other's velour sweaters. Exactly. Um, and, and, and dance so, the night away. Right. And so there was a ethos of uh, universal love and, and togetherness in the 60s flower power movement in the... Uh, the light side of that movement, but the drug of choice sort of cut against that. It was that, and you could argue that uh, this is an American movement, so therefore its movement of togetherness was highly individualistic. But if you have a uh, a, a drug, and I guess this whole segment sort of argues, is it the drug that makes the social changes or the social situation that determines which drug becomes popular? But something that is inflected by ecstasy might have. A more of a genuine togetherness to it. And so you might not have, uh, even though decisions may not have been made on any chemicals, you may not have seen <laughs> things like, you know, deciding to hire the Hell's Angels to be the uh, security at Altamont. Right. Uh, in, in a world of ecstasy. If everyone at Altamont is rolling, no one gets stabbed. <laughs> yes. And so uh, the dark side of the 60s uh, would not be as pronounced and uh, therefore might lead to, uh, you know, do people become more uh, successful political organizers if they've uh, done ecstasy together? Would they have 
more of a chance of uh, stopping the war sooner? I think if you're looking at ecstasy becoming a, a big or window or MDMA to use it correctly. Um, if you're, if you're, if you're thinking of that as something that is, um, part of the scene and that you're dropped, maybe not at the Port Huron conference, but maybe after the Port Huron conference at the after parties, um, you are, you're maybe creating, even if it's a chemical illusion. And there are those who would argue that all of our affection is chemical illusion. Those people are awful. Uh, but the, uh, but it creates this chemical illusion of togetherness, which again, in the 1960s, they were terrible at determining the difference between chemical illusions and real things anyway. So you, you, you might have seen a, a broader, uh, movement that was harder to, to break into, or you might have seen it, uh, be easier to detect the narcs, the, the COINTELPRO guys, uh, because they're either not rolling or when they are, they're babbling nonsense because like many, uh, uh, drugs of that sort, uh, ecstasy also has a bit of an in vino veritas feel to it. And guys who can hold their liquor are maybe not able to hold their window, uh, quite so well. So the, so the movement I think, uh, feels stronger and is maybe less riddled with informers. Uh, ending the war is not something the movement brought about. Uh, ending the war is something the Viet Cong brought about, but, uh, the, uh, other sorts of, uh, social changes that, uh, the movement looked for, uh, communalism and, uh, and things like that. You know, my, my Calvinist soul says it doesn't matter how much ear on, uh, end of the day, you still, um, uh, are an awful human being and, and hate other people. I think that that's probably the case true. Right. But because if there was a, a utopian mass social effect, of ecstasy, it would have happened would have in the nineties, in, in the eighties and nineties, <laughs> right, yeah. uh, when it became prevalent. And, uh, and and Manchester, while it produced a lot of uh, certainly very good music for the for the aughts, it did not produce a utopia there either. In fact, yeah, if you uh, <laughs> see Twenty Four Hour Party People, the excellent Michael Winterbottom movie about that scene, um, you'll see that it also spiraled. <laughs> yes, in its own. Uh, you know, the, the, it was a callback to the way things spiraled back in the 60s. So it's as if depending yeah. on drugs to fix broad social programs is, uh, perhaps not something that's ever really worked. Doesn't seem to be the thing that makes it happen. But, but I think that the notion that you have, uh, this sort of communal feeling and it, the, the, the 60s nostalgia is already, you know, odious and choking. I think one of the things that might happen is that it gets even stronger if there was a, if you remember being in the garden with these people, because you have this strong chemical uh, communalism with them. And so what happens is not so much that the 60s accomplished a great deal more than the 60s accomplished, but the baby boomer desire to return people to that sense of communalism is stronger. And so you have um, a, a, a even more prominent and pronounced uh, a boomer ethos uh, moving through uh, American uh, culture. And I guess the question is, does Generation X – by and large, they did abandon LSD once LSD becomes controlled, um, or, or do they uh, embrace it because it's just so much more fun and uh, they they put their own spin on it, uh, or maybe in reaction to the uh, the LS the the ecstasy generation uh, generation X becomes the LSD generation and does go inward and uh, lock out the rest of the world that way. Maybe that's what happens is you get the the sort of the the weird experimental music, but it happens. With, with country or something that it's, there's some sort of weird LSD country, uh, because that's when new country is, is, is growing up is in the seventies. And so instead of, uh, Jack Daniels and, uh, Benzedrine, it's, uh, LSD is also fueling that scene. So you get like 19 minute versions of, um, uh, the wreck of the old 97. A future in which the, uh, boomers do not, uh, 
sell out their values quite so hard in the 80s uh, would also have big effect on the tech sector that perhaps uh, some of the uh, values of uh, this uh, this new 60s might actually uh, make their way into the practices of these companies as opposed to just being part of their uh, rhetoric. That the old uh, the, the old well model of the internet might be more what we have, or at least might be a bigger part of the internet that we have now. Although, again, uh, speaking of the effect of drugs on, on social behavior, uh, does the effect of uh, social media's uh, instant anger button uh, work as well uh, or as uh, thoroughly in a uh, generation that has at least the potential to have been uh, going out to raves all night and dancing to uh, proto-disco. You might have uh, cadres of uh, senior citizens who are basically the, you know, the, the equivalent of the person on site who doesn't get high in order to protect everybody. They might have uh, been early into social media not to uh, project crazy nonsense into the world, but rather to uh, prevent crazy nonsense from spreading. A, or to a project more, love and support. Yes, a, right. uh, that, that there's both dank memes and light memes uh, exactly. in this future. And, uh, you know, uh, togetherness cooperatives uh, to, to fight the brigades. I, I think we're beginning to envision a, a radically utopian version of the, the baby boomers, which that's a giant question as to... <laughs> that's a sign that one or both of us are on drugs right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, although mine is anti-cough medication. Right. There could be some lingering codeine. Uh, working my working on me right now. Um, so uh, that would uh, mean a big reversal because, of course, um, I'm mathematically a boomer, but I am culturally uh, Gen X uh, because the very end of the baby boom was not the beginning of the baby boom. And the whole Gen X culture is a reaction against the uh, false images and projections that uh, all of culture on both the left and right was uh, sending out in the 80s. And so uh, it's all about being Neo and seeing behind the veil, seeing the green numbers behind it all and, and um, being and having a cool leather jacket and all that stuff. And what uh, you would have to be in reaction to a more positive cultural movement that didn't uh, fail quite so hard and has still preserved its values, you might still wear a uh, leather jacket, but uh, you might just be uh, terrible and nihilistic, or perhaps you would be, uh, you would advance the values of millennia. The Xers might have had the millennial values of having been, uh, uh nurtured, uh, almost to extremes and, uh, and dealing with the result of that. Or, but then without the, you know, the rampant, uh, harassment of the uh, 21st century, uh, who knows what the, uh, what the, uh, millennials or the Xers are. So it could, radically change uh, generational uh, politics and the way uh, the images that we attach to uh, our different generational affiliations. And I think that uh, by itself is evidence that I am probably not planning to create this timeline, although I might peek in every now and again and borrow some uh, uh, best of uh, DVDs from it. Or CDs from yeah, it. Yeah, we, we would have to radically relearn our movie history yeah, for one right, thing. Right, yeah. Too, too much work. But yes, definitely, um, uh, uh, definitely the, the, the sound is better. So, uh, if you can, if you can get, uh, Spotify.window, that's the one to get, I guess. Well, I, I'm, I, I have to admit that I find a, uh, parallel universe where EDM became popular in, even sooner, uh, all the more terrifying. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm gonna, uh, just block that out of my mind entirely. And, uh, declare a close to this, uh, exciting episode and, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, 
you know, next week there'll be something less horrific like werewolves or, uh, uh, you know, body horror or something to get that terrible image of uh, more widespread EDM out of my, my mind. <laughs> yes, if um, uh, if we can only hope that, that uh, our horror once more becomes solitary and inward-turning instead of uh, sweaty and oons-oons-making. Exactly. Good, proper Gen X horror. Right. <laughs> Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Ask Miguel. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rob from the rich to give to this podcast alongside such Patreon outlaws as... Andrew M. Reichert. Anton Kulikov. Ryan Leibarger. Timothy Corum. And Tony Kemp. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Walrus Revenge. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.